Chapter Thirty Two of Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter Thirty Two The Schoolboy and the Wood Nymph. Briar Mains being nearer than the hollow, Mr. York had conveyed his young comrade there. He had seen him laid in the best bed of the house, as carefully as if he had been one of his own sons. The sight of his blood, welling from the treacherously inflicted wound, made him indeed the son of the Yorkshire gentleman's heart. The spectacle of the sudden event, of the tall, straight shape prostrated in its pride across the road, of the fine southern head laid low in the dust, of that youth and prime flung at once before him, pallid, lifeless, helpless this was the very combination of circumstances to win for the victim mr york's liveliest interest no other hand was there to raise to aid no to question kindly no other brain to concert measures he had to do it all himself this utter dependence of the speechless bleeding youth as a youth he regarded him on his benevolence secured that benevolence most effectually well did mr york like to have power and to use it he had now between his hands power over a fellow-creature's life it suited him no less perfectly did it suit his saturnine better half the incident was quite in her way and to her taste some women would have been terror-struck to see a gory man brought in and laid down in their hall in the howl of the night there you would suppose was subject matter for hysterics no Mrs. York went into hysterics when Jessie would not leave the garden to come to her knitting, or when Martin proposed starting for Australia, with a view to realize freedom and escape the tyranny of Matthew. But an attempted murder near her door, a half-murdered man in her best bed, set her straight, cheered her spirits, gave her cap the dash of a turban. Mrs. York was just the woman who, while rendering miserable the drudging life of a simple maid-servant, would nurse like a heroine an hospital full of plague-patients. She almost loved Moore. Her tough heart almost yearned towards him when she found him committed to her charge. Left in her arms, as dependent on her as her youngest born in the cradle, had she seen a domestic or one of her daughters give him a draught of water or smooth his pillow she would have boxed the intruder's ears she chased jessie and rose from the upper realm of the house she forbade the housemaids to set their foot in it now if the accident had happened at the rectory gates and old hellstone had taken in the martyr neither york nor his wife would have pitied him they would have adjudged him right serve for his tyranny and meddling as it was he became for the present the apple of their eye strange lewis moore was permitted to come to sit down on the edge of the bed and lean over the pillow to hold his brother's hand and press his pale forehead with his fraternal lips and mrs york bore it well she suffered him to stay half the day there she once suffered him to sit up all night in the chamber she rose herself at five o'clock of a wet november morning and with her own hands lit the kitchen fire and made the brothers a breakfast, and served it to them herself. Majestically arrayed in a boundless flannel wrapper, a shawl in her nightcap, she sat and watched them eat, as complacently as a hen beholds her chickens feed. 
yet she gave the cook warning that day for venturing to make and carry up to mr moore a basin of sago gruel and the housemaid lost her favour because when mr lewis was departing she brought him his surtout aired from the kitchen and like a forward piece as she was helped him on with it and accepted in return a smile a thank you my girl and a shilling two ladies called one day pale and anxious and begged earnestly humbly to be allowed to see mr moore one instant mrs york hardened her heart and sent them packing not without opprobrium but how was it when hortense moore came not so bad as might have been expected the whole family of the moors really seemed to suit mrs york so as no other family had ever suited her hortense and she possessed an exhaustless mutual theme of conversation in the corrupt propensities of servants their views of this class were similar they watched them with the same suspicion and judged them with the same severity hortense too from the very first showed no manner of jealousy of mrs york's attentions to robert she let her keep the post of nurse with little interference and for herself found ceaseless occupation in fidgeting about the house holding the kitchen under surveillance reporting what passed there and in short making herself generally useful visitors they both of them agreed in excluding sedulously from the sick-room they held the young mill-owner captive and hardly let the air breathe or the sun shine on him mr mcturk the surgeon to whom moore's case had been committed pronounced his wound of a dangerous but he trusted not of a hopeless character at first he wished to place him with a nurse of his own selection but this neither mrs york nor hortense would hear of they promised faithful observance of directions he was left therefore for the present in their hands doubtless they executed the trust to the best of their ability but something got wrong the bandages were displaced or tampered with great loss of blood followed mcturk being summoned came with steed of foam he was one of those surgeons whom it is dangerous to vex abrupt in his best moods in his worst savage on seeing moore's state he relieved his feelings by a little flowery language with which it is not necessary to strew the present page a bouquet or two of the choicest blossoms fell on the unperturbed head of one mr graves a stony young assistant he usually carried about with him with a second nosegay he gifted another young gentleman in his train an interesting facsimile of himself being indeed his own son but the full corbeille of blushing bloom fell to the lot of meddling womankind en masse for the best part of one winter night himself and satellites were busied about moore there at his bedside shut up alone with him in his chamber they wrought and wrangled over his exhausted frame they three were on one side of the bed and death on the other the conflict was sharp it lasted till day broke when the balance between the belligerents seemed so equal that both parties might have claimed the victory at dawn graves and young mcturk were left in charge of the patient while the senior went himself in search of additional strength and secured it in the person of mrs horsfall the best nurse on his staff to this woman he gave more in charge with the sternest injunctions respecting the responsibility laid on her shoulders she took this responsibility stolidly as she did also the easy-chair at the bed-head that moment she began her reign mrs horsfall had one virtue orders received from mcturk she obeyed to the letter the ten commandments were less binding in her eyes than her surgeon's dictum in other respects 
she was no woman but a dragon hortense moore fell a face before her mrs york withdrew crushed yet both these women were personages of some dignity in their own estimation and of some bulk in the estimation of others perfectly cowed by the breadth the height the bone and the brawn of mrs horsfall they retreated to the back parlour she for her part sat upstairs when she liked and downstairs when she preferred it she took her dram three times a day and her pipe of tobacco four times as to moore no one now ventured to inquire about him mrs horsfall had him a dry nurse it was she who was to do for him and the general conjecture now ran that she did for him accordingly morning and evening mcturk came to see him his case thus complicated by a new mischance was become one of interest in the surgeon's eyes he regarded him as a damaged piece of clockwork which it would be creditable to his skill to set a-going again graves and young mcturk moore's sole other visitors contemplated him in the light in which they were wont to contemplate the occupant for the time being of the dissecting-room at stillbro infirmary robert moore had a pleasant time of it in pain in danger too weak to move almost too weak to speak a sort of giantess his keeper the three surgeons his sole society thus he lay through the diminishing days and lengthening nights of the whole drear month of november in the commencement of his captivity moore used feebly to resist mrs horsfall he hated the sight of her rough bulk and dreaded the contact of her hard hands but she taught him docility in a trice she made no account whatever of his six feet his manly thews and sinews she turned him in his bed as another woman would have turned a babe in its cradle when he was good she addressed him as my dear and honey and when he was bad she sometimes shook him did he attempt to speak when mcturk was there she lifted her hand and bade him hush like a nurse checking a forward child if she had not smoked if she had not taken gin it would have been better he thought but she did both once in her absence he intimated to mcturk that that woman was a dram-drinker pooh my dear sir they are also was the reply he got for his pains but horsefall has this virtue added the surgeon drunk or sober she always remembers to obey me at length the latter autumn passed its fogs its rains withdrew from england their mourning and their tears its winds swept on to sigh over lands far away behind november came deep winter clearness stillness frost accompanying a calm day had settled into a crystalline evening the world wore a north pole coloring all its lights and tints looked like the reflets of white or violet or pale green gems the hills wore a lilac blue the setting sun had purple in its red the sky was ice all silvered azure when the stars rose they were of white crystal not gold gray or cerulean or faint emerald hues cool pure and transparent tinged the mass of the landscape what is this by itself in a wood no longer green no longer even russet a wood neutral tint this dark blue moving object why it is a schoolboy a briarfield grammar schoolboy who has left his companions now trudging home by the high road 
and is seeking a certain tree with a certain mossy mound at its root, convenient as a seat. Why is he lingering here? The air is cold, and the time wears late. He sits down. What is he thinking about? Does he feel the chaste charm nature wears to-night? A pearl-white moon smiles through the green trees. Does he care for her smile? Impossible to say, for he is silent, and his countenance does not speak. As yet, it is no mirror to reflect sensation, but rather a mask to conceal it. This boy is a stripling of fifteen, slight and tall of his years. In his face there is as little of amenity as of servility. His eye seems prepared to note any incipient attempt to control or overreach him, and the rest of his features indicate faculties alert for resistance. Wise ushers avoid unnecessary interference with that lad. To break him in by severity would be a useless attempt. To win him by flattery would be an effort worse than useless. He is best let alone. Time will educate, and experience train him. Professedly, Martin York, it is a young York, of course, tramples on the name of poetry. Talk sentiment to him, and you would be answered by sarcasm. Here he is, wandering alone, waiting duteously on nature, while she unfolds a page of stern of silent and of solemn poetry beneath his attentive gaze being seated he takes from his satchel a book not the latin but a contraband volume of fairy tales there will be light enough yet for an hour to serve his keen young vision besides the moon waits on him her beam dim and vague as yet fills the glade where he sits he reads he is led into a solitary mountain region all around him is rude and desolate, shapeless, and almost colorless. He hears bells tinkle on the wind. Forth riding from the formless folds of the mist, dawns on him the brightest vision. A green-robed lady on a snow-white palfrey. He sees her dress, her gems, and her steed. She rests him with some mysterious questions. He is spellbound, and must follow her into fairyland. A second legend bears him to the seashore. There tumbles in a strong tide, boiling at the base of dizzy cliffs, it rains and blows. A reef of rocks, black and rough, stretches far into the sea. All along, and among, and above these crags, dash and flash, sweep and leap, swells the wreaths, drifts of snowy spray. Some lone wanderer some lone wanderer is out on these rocks, treading with cautious step the wet wild seaweed, glancing down into hollows where the brine lies fathoms deep and emerald clear, and seeing there wilder and stranger and huger vegetation than is found on land, with treasure of shells, some green, some purple, some pearly clustered in the curls of the snaky plants he hears a cry looking up and forward he sees at the bleak point of the rift a tall pale thing shaped like man but made of spray transparent tremulous awful it stands not alone they are all human figures that wanton in the rocks a crowd of foam women a band of white, evanescent nereids. Hush! 
Shut the book. Hide it in the satchel. Martin hears a tread. He listens. No. Yes. Once more the dead leaves, lightly crushed, rustle on the wood path. Martin watches. The trees part, and a woman issues forth. She is a lady, dressed in dark silk, a veil covering her face. Martin never met a lady in this wood before, nor any female save now and then a village girl come to gather nuts. Tonight the apparition does not displease him. He observes as she approaches that she is neither old nor plain, but on the contrary very youthful, and but that he now recognizes her for one whom he has often willfully pronounced ugly, he would deem that he discovered traits of beauty behind the thin gauze of that veil. She passes him and says nothing. He knew she would. All women are proud monkeys, and he knows no more conceited doll than that Carolyn Helston. The thought is hardly hatched in his mind when the lady retraces those two steps she had got beyond him, and, raising her veil, reposes her glance on his face, while she softly asks, Are you one of Mr. York's sons? No human evidence would ever have been able to persuade Martin York that he blushed when thus addressed. Yet blush he did, to the ears. I am, he said bluntly, and encouraged himself to wonder, superciliously, what would come next. You were Martin, I think, was the observation that followed. It could not have been more felicitous. It was a simple sentence, very artlessly, a little timidly pronounced, but it chimed in harmony to the youth's nature. It stilled him like a note of music. Martin had a keen sense of his personality. He felt it right and sensible that the girl should discriminate him from his brothers. Like his father, he hated ceremony. It was acceptable to hear a lady address him as Martin, and not Mr. Martin, or Master Martin, which form would have lost her good graces for ever. Worse, if possible, than ceremony was the other extreme of slipshod familiarity. The slight tone of bashfulness, the scarcely perceptible hesitation, was considered perfectly in place. "'I am Martin,' he said. "'Are your father and mother well?' It was lucky she did not say Papa and Mama. That would have undone all. "'And Rose and Jessie?' "'I suppose so. My cousin Hortense is still at Briarmains.' "'Oh, yes.' Martin gave a comic half-smile and demi-groan. The half-smile was responded to by the lady, who could guess in what sort of odor Hortense was likely to be held by the young Yorks. "'Does your mother like her? They suit so well about the servants they can't help liking each other. "'It is cold to-night. Why are you out so late? I lost my way in this wood.' Now, indeed, Martin allowed himself a refreshing laugh of scorn. <laughs> "'Lost your way in the mighty forest of Briarmains. "'You deserve never more to find it. "'I never was here before, and I believe I am trespassing now. "'You might inform against me if you choose, Martin, and have me find. "'It is your father's wood.' "'I should think I knew that, but since you are so simple as to lose your way, "'I will guide you out.' "'You need not. I have got into the track now. I shall be right, Martin.' a little quickly. How's Mr. Moore? Martin had heard certain rumors. It struck him that it might be amusing to make an experiment. Going to die? Nothing can save him. 
all hope flung overboard. She put her veil aside. She looked into his eyes and said, To die. To die. All along of the women, my mother and the rest, they did something about his bandages that finished everything. He would have got better but for them. I am sure they should be arrested, cribbed, tried, and brought in for Botany Bay, at the very least. The questioner, perhaps, did not hear this judgment. She stood motionless. In two minutes, without another word, she moved forwards. No good night, no further inquiry. This was not amusing, nor what Martin had calculated on. He expected something dramatic and demonstrative. It was hardly worth while to frighten the girl if she would not entertain him in return. He called, Miss Helston. She did not hear her turn. He hastened after and overtook her. Come, are you uneasy about what I said? You know nothing about death, Martin. You are too young for me to talk to you concerning such a thing. Did you believe me? It's all flummery. Moore eats like three men. They are always making sago or tapioca or something good for him. I never go into the kitchen, but there is a saucepan on the fire, cooking him some dainty. I think I will play the old soldier and be fed on the fat of the land like him. Martin! Martin! Here her voice trembled, and she stopped. It's exceedingly wrong of you, Martin. You have almost killed me. Again she stopped. She leaned against a tree, trembling, shuddering, and as pale as death. Martin contemplated her with inexpressible curiosity. In one sense it was, as he would have expressed it, nuts to him to see this. It told him so much, and he was beginning to have a great relish for discovering secrets. In another sense, it reminded him of what he had once felt when he had heard a blackbird lamenting for her nestlings, which Matthew had crushed with a stone, and that was not a pleasant feeling. Unable to find anything very appropriate to say in order to comfort her, he began to cast about in his mind what he could do. He smiled. The lad's smile gave wondrous transparency to his physiognomy. Eureka! he cried. I'll set all straight by and by. You are better now, Miss Carolyn. Walk forward, he urged. Not reflecting that it would be more difficult for Miss Helston than for himself to climb a wall or penetrate a hedge, he piloted her by a shortcut which led to no gate. The consequence was he had to help her over some formidable obstacles, and while he railed at her for her helplessness, he perfectly liked to feel himself of use. Martin, before we separate, assure me seriously, and on your word of honor, that Mr. Moore is better. How very much you think of that more! No, but many of his friends may ask me, and I wish to be able to give an authentic answer. You may tell them he is well enough, only idle. You may tell them that he takes mutton chops for dinner, and the best of arrowroot for summer. I intercepted a basin myself one night on its way upstairs, and ate half of it. And who waits on him, Martin? Who nurses him? Nurses him? The great baby! Why, a woman as round and big as our largest water, but a rough, hard-favored old girl. I make no doubt she leads him a rich life. Nobody else is let near him. He is chiefly in the dark. It is my belief she knocks him about terribly in that chamber. I listen at the wall sometimes when I am in bed, and I think I hear her thumping him. You should see her fist. She could hold half a dozen hands like yours in her one palm. 
after all, notwithstanding the chops and jellies he gets, I would not be in his shoes. In fact, it is my private opinion that she eats most of what goes up on the tray to Mr. Moore. I wish she may not be starving him. Profound silence and meditation on Carolyn's part, and a sly watchfulness on Martin's. You never see him, I suppose, Martin. I? No, I don't care to see him, for my own part. Silence again. Did not you come to our house once with Mrs. Pryor, about five weeks since, to ask after him? Again inquired Martin. Yes. I dare say you wished to be shown upstairs. We did wish it. We entreated it. But your mother declined. Ay, she declined. I heard it all. She treated you as it is her pleasure to treat visitors now and then. She behaved to you rudely and harshly. She was not kind, for you know, Martin, we are relations, and it is natural we should take an interest in Mr. Moore. But here we must part. We are at your father's gate. Very well, what of that? I shall walk home with you? They will miss you, and wonder where you are. Let them. I can take care of myself, I suppose. Martin knew that he had already incurred the penalty of a lecture, and dry bread for his tea. No matter, the evening had furnished him with an adventure. It was better than muffins and toast. He walked home with Carolyn. On the way he promised to see Mr. Moore, in spite of the dragon who guarded his chamber, and appointed an hour on the next day, when Carolyn was to come to Briarman's wood, and get tidings of him. He would meet her at a certain tree. The scheme led to nothing. Still, he liked it. Having reached home, the dry bread and the lecture were duly administered to him, and he was dismissed to bed at an early hour. He accepted his punishment with the toughest stoicism. Ere ascending to his chamber, he paid a secret visit to the dining-room, a still, cold, stately apartment, seldom used, for the family customarily dined in the back parlour. He stood before the mantelpiece, and lifted his candle to two pictures hung above, female heads, one a type of serene beauty, happy and innocent, the other more lovely, but forlorn and desperate. She looked like that, he said, gazing on the latter sketch, when she sobbed, turned white and leaned against the tree. I suppose, he pursued when he was in his room, and seated on the edge of his pallet bed, I suppose she is what they call in love. Yes, in love with that long thing in the next chamber. Whist, is that horsefall clattering him? I wonder he does not yell out. It really sounds as if she had fallen on him tooth and nail. But I suppose she is making the bed. I saw her at it once. She hid into the mattress as if she was boxing. It is queer. Zilla, they call her Zilla. Zilla Horsefall is a woman, and Carolyn Hellstone is a woman. They are two individuals of the same species, not much alike, though. Is she a pretty girl, that Carolyn? I suspect she is. Very nice to look at, something so clear in her face, so soft in her eyes. I approve of her looking at me. It does me good. She has long eyelashes. Their shadow seems to rest where she gazes, and to instill peace and thought. If she behaves well and continues to suit me, as she has suited me to-day, I may do her a good turn. I rather relish the notion of circumventing my mother and that ogress old horsefall. Not that I like humouring more. But whatever I do, I'll be paid for, and in coin of my own choosing. I know what reward I will claim, one displeasing to more, and agreeable 
to myself. He turned into bed. End of chapter 32